Dear Trevor, I hope this finds you well. That's what they say now, isn't it? They probably always said it, but I do hope. You don't take care of yourself, you know. You never did. You neglect. I've not forgotten. But you're one of the best in the business, so maybe that's why. Thank you for sending Anna to us. The director and I both think she's fantastic. But she does need to find the right project. You need to find the right project for her. I'm not sure what that is. But she's... Well, I don't have to tell you. The truth is she's perfect for the part. But there's no way in hell we're going to hire her. This role, this film, isn't right. To be honest, she's the best actor we saw. But I'm afraid it just can't happen. And I think you don't need me to explain why. I'm mad at you, in a way. I want to ask, what the hell were you thinking? I want to ask if you knew that specifically I was casting this film. I want to ask where you found her. I want to ask these things, but I know the answers. The truth really is, she scared us. She scared the hell out of us. Something happened in that room, in this stupid echoing room. They always smell like the chemical of new carpet or of floor. Something happened there. She, I'm not sure who was more rattled, the director or me. He, Clive, do you know him? Or maybe I should say, considering yesterday, do you know him too? Well, if you know his work, you know what kind of thing he looks for. You know the sort of films he makes. The audition started not too different from others, but that changed fast. She became, she looked like a, a lizard or a night creature from the forest somewhere. Big black circles for eyes. Her skin was so white. And then it started getting this strange color Sometimes when people look like that, they're sitting in themselves. Maybe haunted, maybe alien, but like they aren't particularly able to move from where they are, you know? Like they're just on their own island, unreachable. But she was hungry. She was so goddamned hungry. We felt like she might just not... Well, it's difficult to put into words, but I'm sure you know that. You know her. Did you find her in that church of yours? The one with the forest with the purple trees? The one I went to with you for a while because I liked the way you lit up like a tree with fairy lights. The way you buzzed, extended, drunk in the world. I remember the sermons and the feasts. I have trouble eating now. I've shrunk and weakened, aged deep since I left. Some days I can't believe I followed you into that circle of fiends. Some nights I ache for that fever and joy. But no matter how much hunger I had at that time had for you, I couldn't stand it. Greed, the cooking fires, the stews and roasts, 
the taste. I wasn't built to accept that, the missing, the lost, the tenderest fat and meat. I want to tell you that I've never discussed my experiences with you or in the place of your faith, and I won't. Was this a gesture of violence, sending her to me? If you wanted to kill me, you could have by now. You know where I am. I'll just say that I've never seen Clive more shaken, more peeled. We both were, to be frank. But the difference was there was something I recognized in her. Some scream, some brutal elegance. We stopped for a while when she left and sat with shaking hands. I hope this finds you well. Tell Anna she was wonderful. Please send more actors within your considerable representation our way to consider for future roles. The timing isn't right for us, but we encourage you and your talented clients to keep trying. Yours, Tom. I'm here. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm calling you. I'm calling you back later than I said. I, I got a, a was driving along and um, got into a backup a huge line of cars waiting to get into this you know this haunted house haunted trail thing. Um, you know, big flashing lights and and there was this line of people actually also on the shoulder of the road waiting to get tickets. I guess they were they had nowhere to funnel these people. Um, but where the line ended, uh, only about a quarter of a mile down in the woods, there I saw this um, this big old rotting house with a, this window upstairs that looks like a, looked like a gaping mouth and a strange barn behind it. It, ju- it just I, I thought to myself, you know, here all these people are lining up to pay twenty dollars a piece for the flashing lights and the. The, the the garish effects, and I wonder if any of them saw what I did on on the way to this uh, thing. This is you know this is where the the fear would be uh, m- far more intense there in the dark uh, on that dark property. But I I'm, I'm ready to go now. Where, where did you say uh, you were? I didn't catch that on your last message. Oh well, I am currently in. Nebraska, in a, a small town called Mullen. I came to this area to see um, some people that I know. They live a, a little bit north of where I am. There's a wildlife refuge called Valentine National Wildlife Refuge. And, um, you know, we've been talking about having a, a visit, uh, but... Uh, there was there was kind of a strange, I don't know if urgency is the word, but the, uh, I, I felt this year in particular, I, I really did need to need to go see them. Um, they they had an experience with a neighbor that was very strange, and I I don't know, you know, I, I had the sense that they were, I don't know, asking me to come and check this out, or maybe they just wanted my 
opinion or maybe they just wanted to know that they weren't they weren't having this uh kind of unhinged and isolated experience uh, their neighbor lives in a house that is kind of um uh, sit back from the road farther than theirs, but is is still basically on their property. He's a he's a widower. Um, he had moved in, um, oh gosh, maybe eight or nine years back, and they've been very friendly with him over the years. And he, uh, both he and this family, have kind of kept you know they keep an eye on each other, especially when the weather starts to turn cold. You know this time of year. Um, things start getting very inhospitable there can be a lot of utility outages and just um they mentioned a few weeks ago that he he'd gone on a fishing trip and he's still very active and you know uh he's in his in, in the 60s and he uh, was going to go kind of one for one last uh, fishing trip with some friends before the weather turned even more inhospitable than it is now when he got back, he just was acting very strange. They didn't hear from him right away, which was odd because he normally would have let them know um, that he was back. They went to his door, and for a couple of days, they didn't get an answer, but they could see signs that he had returned. But then they started to they started to see him sitting out in front of the house just in a chair wrapped in a blanket and they tried to talk to him and he was very quiet very monosyllabic they said that he looked terrible he um his skin had grown very ashen and he looked very uh, bony and thin and his eyes were sunken and uh they said that his it looked like like the ends of his fingers had darkened like he had like his fingers had blackened like he had been frostbit or something you know it was it was very odd he didn't seem well at all um they called a doctor to come and and check on him but whenever whenever um someone else would come to the property he would disappear and he would not be found and then he would turn up again you know sitting in this chair uh at just yeah wrapped in a blanket staring out not saying a word and um the last time they went over to the house they couldn't find him again he seemed to have disappeared but there were there were these odd signs in the house. There, there were these odd kind of patches of like ash, um, almost like, almost like he'd been moving through the house, leaving these the bales of, of ash. This ash was sort of like on the furniture. It, there were footprints in it. Like it, it was as if his body itself was emitting ash or turning into ash. Anyway, I, I feel bad. I feel I, I left very hastily. Uh, I felt very helpless. I had nothing. I had no words of advice to offer them. I had no ideas. I was there three nights. And um, I mean, I just saw what they saw. I didn't see him. He was gone. But they took me inside and I saw, I saw the ash. 
um, it was very strange, very eerie. And at night, I the winds were really kicking up and I heard this kind of terrible, it blended into the winds enough that I questioned whether I was hearing it at all, but these terrible um, sort of howls and calls. Um, I've never, I've never heard, I've never heard anything like it. And I hope, I hope to never again I knew to come at night. The house was through a gate down a narrow paved road. It used to be a gate. I guess it still was. But it was neglected now, like the rest of the property. It had rusted and gone brittle and weak and creaking. And it hung uneven and low and scraped along the layer of dirt and small rocks that settled on the road like snow. I made half an arc there as I swung it wide, half an angel. It had long since stopped being attended, but at some point, someone had unlocked it. I looked back at the headlights of my car, the milky cloud of dust catching and sparking in the beams. A wind had yawned up and now combed the trees and pushed up the canyon. The dogs here always smelled coyote. Dear, I had some clearance. I managed to get him on the phone, which was barely possible. Certainly lately, but if I think of it, for years. He sounded at once pleading and barely there. When I reached the house, no lights were on. Shadows clumped, fat dark fists on the windows and tiled roof. There was a big, weird, low palm tree by the front porch, and I brushed past the clammy panels of its leaves. I knocked, politely, performatively, but the door was open. The heavy door swung in. Somewhere deep inside, far back in the house, a lamp glowed. Hello, I called. I tried to sand down all the scary edges in my voice. In here came the reply. The house had a clumsy, round, lopsided smell, like cooking oil in sink pans and skin. It smelled like a tamped-down shirt, a leaked-in box, like laundry undone but it hadn't yet crossed over into sour, into rot. But there was no way it wouldn't if it kept up, if it went on. I found him in the small sitting room next to the kitchen. There was an odd rolling door that connected the two. It wasn't a dining room. He'd always called it the listening room. There was a rich, massive lava lamp, a state-of-the-art turntable. There was a fiber-optic rotating tree with silent tendrils pulsing. When I appeared, when I entered, he had his face turned completely toward me. I was startled, I guess. He looked utterly remote, ruddy, smeared. 
Hi, he said. Hey. I didn't want to pretend I was there for no reason. It would be undercutting us both. How are you? He stared at me. The light over his face and behind him buoyed him up. Otherwise, he seemed dead. Are you all right? He let out a chuck laugh, a cough of mirth. Sure, he said. The contractual exchange. He didn't care if I believed him or not. Everything's under control. I looked around at the posters, curling and lost, the long sofas lining the room. Have you been sleeping in here? Um, I don't know. Some. Mike, I'm wondering, where's Amy? Todd, are they here? No, he said. He was not defensive, not matter-of-fact. I can't explain what it's been like. The lights from the hills, the canyons, echoing screams. See, I've realized something. We're all on our own. Nobody can help you with anything. And nobody can make a difference in what you've decided in the direction you're going. And nothing matters. Nothing. I don't know. I came home one night in the strange wind. There was a fire just south of here, off the corridor freeway. We all had our radios on for the first time since I can remember. It lent this thing. I guess it brought us together. And I went outside by the pool and there were these weird sounds Mike where's Amy where's Todd the clock struck ten Mike his eyes were desperate and clutching and then his face just fell it dropped like a cloth grayed out thinned the fat slid down he opened the robe he'd been wrapped in, swaddled with his crossed arms, and patted his belly tenderly, circled it with his palms. All gone, he said with peace and inquiry. They're all gone. You know, the first time I remember hearing about um, this feature called The Wendigo, uh, as many people <laughs> my age probably did, uh, was in the story in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the Alvin Schwartz uh, classic. There was a, a story called Wendigo, The Wendigo, and I had not heard of it or that idea. And the story, thinking of it now, it was actually fairly vague. There wasn't really a visual of this being. Uh, it, it, it was kind of loosely sketched, very eerie. Uh, it was in the winter. 
um, it was in the woods. There, there was, um, you know, a, a, um, a calling, a calling on the winds. There was a pile of ashes. There were footprints in the snow. And then later on, uh, I started to encounter, you know, these other ideas of the Wendigo in, in culture. You know, usually, you know, we, we usually see um, uh, the depiction of a Wendigo now is kind of this, this, um, this humanoid, kind of a human-beast hybrid, right, with uh, there's usually horns or antlers, uh, maybe hooves. Um, I apparently that that's... Uh, you know that that wasn't really in the original legend of the Wendigo anywhere, but at some point along the way, this dual nature um, of being a you know human human animal hybrid uh, came into play. But um, you know this this story of the Wendigo, so many different origins, so many different versions, but it it's basically a story of cannibalism. It's, it's, it's sometimes described as a spirit. Sometimes it's a giant. Sometimes, um, sometimes it can appear, um, just as a human, but the human has a heart of ice. Um, usually it's, it's having to do with, um, a, a, a human who weakens and, um, um, under, uh, under, under uh, duress of necessity or just great, um, great appetites, uh, consumes human flesh and then becomes possessed with this spirit of the Wendigo. Uh, is, so it's basically, you know, it's a, it's a cautionary tale about greed and about hunger. Um, it's, uh, the Wendigo is a possessor. It's just this idea of being constantly devouring, constantly hungry, hungry enough to cross this very particular line. Um, and the Wendigo is supposedly the more the Wendigo eats, the more people the Wendigo devours its body will grow in proportion to the amount that it has eaten. So it's never satiated. It's never fed. It's never fattened. It's never satisfied. And of course, it just makes you think of, um, of cannibalism. Yeah, very much so. Uh, in fact, this, this was years ago. I had to write a paper on the Magonier case, which you may be familiar with. Um, Happened in Detroit in, I think, 1968. This guy, John McGonier, he uh, killed his neighbor who lived three doors down, a very nice condominium building. John McGonier was married and his neighbor three doors down was also married. They each had a wife, but he they engaged in a, in a relationship. They, they became involved. They were having an affair with each other. At some point, John McGonier killed him and uh, it's so often when it comes to cannibalistic acts that are eventually uncovered by the police, you hear the phrases of, you know, this, the person may have engaged in cannibalism or maybe they ate part of the body. But in the Magonier case, it always disturbed me 
very much because he, he, be, he began to eat his neighbor after the murder. He secreted the body away in the freezer unbeknownst to either wife. And he, over the course of months, I think it was three months, he ate the neighbor little by little, but he didn't just eat parts. He didn't, he consumed the man totally little by little. And he documented it in his diary until the man was simply entirely gone. And I remember reading, uh, the man's widow wrote uh, about the psychological burden of her husband's body disappearing into someone else entirely. Nothing left, nothing to bury, nothing to, um, you know, no, no closure. And, and to think that this person ate the entirety of another person. And uh, the, the strangest thing, of course, in the Maganier case was that John Maganier a couple of times signed, uh, in his diary, he referred to himself as the Wendigo. He was referring to the cannibalistic uh, nature of the the Wendigo, and I, I believe he is still alive, and and still in jail. You know, one of the images that has stuck with me as I've been researching. Uh, you know, I mentioned that um, one of the forms that the Wendigo can take is just that of a human, but. Uh, you won't be able to tell other than you might detect a chill around them or they, they may um, breathe out vapor, but the, the human, you know, their, their heart is a heart of ice. Another image is that um, sometimes when taking this particular cure, uh, the afflicted or the possessed may vomit out ice. There's a, um, it's highly controversial, of course, but there's a psychological um, condition or state, uh, the, win- the Wendigo psychosis, and that is when someone becomes fixated on consuming human flesh. Pink light, gray light. Yellow suburb street lamp light. Tan cars, white cars, black and silver cars. No oily drips or pools, never on the clean butter cement. They are trying to write a song. He is trying to make one up during pajama feed and the brushing of teeth. River, 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 he sings. Rurr, through slaver of mint. He gives up then, and on the way to bed, switches to classics. There was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. Then a story in the cricket night. Lamplets, paper dinosaurs circle the room. She reads, But the wild things cried, Oh, please don't go. We'll eat you up. We love you so. And Max said, she looks down at his little nose half buried in blanket. No, 
he chin stamps, bursting from the spaceship sheets. As she goes to the door to softly close, not all the way, she is every time reminded, his little chime voice says, I'm scout. She turns around but holds the door, clutching the frame, its stripy strength. Really? There's nothing to be scared of. Your parents will be home quick, any time now. The half-moons of his little fists grip the spaceship sheets. What are you scared of? A few seconds pass. A dog barks down the street. The Fuigueta. Oh, she says. Well, that's just got the good food in it. Carrots, milk, chicken. And the ice cream lives in there, too. Up in the attic where it's cold. She smiles and turns off the big light. It's a happy place. He is still as chalk, eyes careful and big. No, he says. Not that Fuigueto. The other one. In uh, New Mexico, there was a, a cult not very well known. It was called um, the Church of the Acknowledgement. And we're talking maybe 20 or 30 people at its at its height. The leader, um, his name was Dietis Clover. Part of their ritual, their way of thinking, was that each year on the anniversary of a member's um, you know, continued involvement in this religion, they were asked to sacrifice a part of their body and consume it. You had to eat part of yourself. and this, But this was preceded by a, a strange kind of negotiation session where there, there was a bargaining where the, the, the cult member would, would essentially pitch what they intended to eat of themselves and and inquire if that was enough, if they were at a spiritual level uh, enough where that's all they had to do. And um, the the cult leader, Deanna's Clover, would respond by uh, looking at where they were in the religion, you know, if they had become spiritual enough, enough to avoid anything more than eating their own finger, their own toe. The, the, I remember seeing photographs. Uh, there were people missing fingers and toes. One was missing an ear. A lot of times it was just a certain amount of flesh that Clover asked for. This, this, the Church of the Acknowledgement did not last very long in the United States. It, it disbanded. Uh, Clover, he, he fled to Brazil at, at some point and he, he actually vanished. He disappeared somewhere um, on the way to Brazil. But that, um, that was one of the more unusual uh, – cases of cannibalism I've, I've come across. Yeah, auto-cannibalism. It's, um, there's something I'm trying to wrap my head around, but I, I haven't quite been able to yet. I, uh, I also was just thinking of the story of a woman 
was reading the story of a woman who um, her husband died and she had him cremated and uh, she began consuming his ashes just little by little, kind of taking them around with her. Um, I believe this was an episode of the show Intervention. <laughs> I, have, I have not, I have not, I've not seen this, but just, there's this idea just of um, uh, something like she's she's paradoxically kind of destroying all that remains of him in an effort to keep him alive and be closer to him. You know, it's it's this it's this ultimate taboo, right? Yet it's it's really not uncommon in the animal kingdom. It happens all the time. And I mean, after all, when we're uh, asked to take communion, we're consuming the body and blood of Christ, right? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, for uh, remember for Dietis Clover in the Church of the Acknowledgement, the rationale, as strange as it was, was that. Uh, he wanted his followers to understand that the body was a meaningless vessel and he was asking them to basically shed their bodily ego by consuming parts of themselves and open up to to their spirit being filled and, and to realize that the spirit is all and the body is nothing. So let's just say that let's remove all of the questions of, you know, how, you know, how this came. Let's say you were in duress. The situation you were in demanded that for survival, you you um, you were you were faced with uh, the consumption of of a fellow human. Would you have any moral roadblocks against that? I've thought about it, and really, honestly, the answer is no. I would have neither moral roadblocks, ethical compunctions, or even, I think, a physical repulsion if I had to survive uh, for, for eating human flesh. How about you? Yeah, I, I'd say pretty much the same for me. 